Well, it's that time of season, is it not? They warned me yesterday. I should have listened, but I didn't. They said Saturday is going to be probably the busiest shopping day of the Christmas season. The malls, the shopping centers are going to be full. The traffic's going to be a nightmare. Did I listen? No, I did not. So I got up off my comfortable position where you'll find me most Saturdays, that is the couch, watching some football. I got up off the couch in my comfortable place and I went out into the shopping world. And within probably about five minutes, I had lost all Christmas spirit that <laughs> might have been there when I started. And I started to complain about traffic and how people were driving and how crowded it was and how much we'd have to walk. And finally, Patty just said to me, you know, if you're just going to give a commentary on the whole day, we, I, <laughs> I can take you back home. You can watch football. <laughs> yeah. So that was good. So I, I snapped to it and got my attitude back in order. And we actually had a good time. Went out and shopped together. So I hope that in all the craziness of the Christmas season, you find some time to think about what is this really all about? And just being here this morning, I hope that I can help you in some way by presenting some truths from God's Word. This is where it all comes from, isn't it? It's, it's from here. It's not from anything I say. It's from what God says to us. And I just bring it to your attention. So I hope that we're able to focus just a little bit upon what is Christmas really all about because it's easy to lose sight of that. Last week we talked about the truth that Jesus Christ is fully human. The book of Luke, I've been going through the four Gospels, the portraits that the Gospel writers portray. He is king of the Jews, book of Matthew, beautiful book. He is the fulfillment of all his Old Testament prophecies. Then Mark, he is our servant. He is busy going about the Father's business, being obedient, and he's going to take our sins and he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's our servant. Then Luke, he's a son of man, a doctor, telling us about the physicalness of Jesus and how he went about living life as fully human. And we need that because he understands us. He can identify with us. And as our substitute, he can take our sins to the cross and go there for us. Today, it's the book of John. I'm completing kind of the whole trip through the Gospels. An incredible book. It's very, a unique book in a lot of ways. John wants us to understand, first and foremost, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about deity here. We're talking about God. Yeah, he's a man. He is king. He is servant. But he's God, and we need to understand that. Who is Jesus is the most important question we can ask. Because based on that, all the rest of everything else hinges, doesn't it? Who is Jesus Christ, his identity? So today we're going to be in the wonderful book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Now, he claimed deity. He said, I am, many times. We talked about that downstairs. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. And to the Jewish ear in first century, to say I am 
was blasphemous. You're saying, I'm God, because that was his name. Jesus says, yes, I am. And he said it many times over, and he taught about the fact that he was God in his statements. Other people claimed that he was God. We talked about doubting Thomas. After Jesus reappeared to the disciples and eventually to Thomas, his exclamation, my Lord and my God, you're it. He understood the deity of Jesus Christ very clearly. Jesus also showed in his miracles, in his signs. The book of John talks about signs that Jesus did to prove that he was God, starting with the turning of water into wine in John chapter 2. It was the first of seven signs that tied him in with God. He claimed deity, his miracles supported these claims, his activities assumed this truth. And finally, his resurrection verified everything he said and did. Without the resurrection, it wouldn't have mattered if he wouldn't have come back to life that day. Neither Mark or John present any kind of child or infant narrative of Jesus. Mark, because as a servant, nobody would care where he came from, what happened in his childhood. Mark just presents him coming and serving, getting busy, going about the Father's business. In John, we have the prologue, and that's what we're going to be reading today. John wants us to know first and foremost, yeah, he was born of Mary. Yes, all those stories are true, the wise men and the shepherds, etc., etc., but you have to understand that he's God. Let's read John 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, a different John, John the Baptist, than the writer, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is a beautiful verse. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is our Jesus, John says, and I want you to know him, and I want you to come to understand who he is. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to learn, and by the way, the word. We'll talk about why he designated that term, but we come to understand that he's speaking of Jesus in this context. So he's speaking of Jesus here. In verse 1 and 2, he wants us to understand that Jesus is eternal. Verse 1 and 2, in the beginning was 
the Word. He was with God. He was God. He was in the beginning with God. He ties this in with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, back there, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. He's tying in Jesus with the original creation, basically saying, just like the world was created there, life was given there, guess what? New life is coming in the beginning. And he purposely ties it in with Genesis 1. This is something new. Seven days of creation, Genesis 1, right? In the book of John, there were seven signs that Jesus did, seven miracles that he did, confirming his deity. John, did, I think, did that on purpose. He wants us to see that completion, seven signs. There are seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the book of John. I am God. Something new is happening here, new life, new creation, and it's all starting again with Christ. So he's tying in John and Genesis a little bit, but he's going beyond that. He wants us to hear that Jesus is eternal. He says, in the beginning was. That word was means that he was already existing. The Greek word there tells us that as creation happened in Genesis 1, the Son of God was already there, along with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He pre-existed creation. He existed before the incarnation. John 8, 58, Jesus says, this was one of those I am statements, before Abraham was, I am. He pre-existed Abraham. That was a shocking statement to the people that heard him. They were like, wait a minute. You're telling us you were around before Abraham? Yeah. He, he was around before the incarnation. He existed before creation. He was there with the Father and with the Spirit. There was some false teaching that was going on in the time of John, and John would have known this. We've talked about Arius, who said there was a time where the Son did not exist. He was less than God. He was a created being. That was the Arius teaching. That was later on in history. But in the time of John, there was this Serinthus, this gentleman named Serinthus, who was teaching around the end of the first century, right around the time that John would have been alive and would have been writing his books. He probably was aware of this, and I, he was teaching specifically. Serinthus taught that the Son of God had no existence prior to his birth through Mary. That's when the story started, according to Serinthus, was when he was born of Mary. Then he continued on. John says, no, he was around before the incarnation. He existed prior to that. The Word, in the beginning was logos, the Word. Couple things about that. Why? Why did he choose to go with that term? Why did he just say Jesus? That would have been simpler. Couple reasons. One, because when he's talking about the Word, he's talking about the way God reveals himself. God's speaking to us. And as was read at the Advent candle this morning, earlier, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 is this beautiful passage. And I just want to read this to you. It says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors back there. He did it through the prophets many times in various ways. He used visions, he used dreams, he used a lot of ways. He even spoke through a donkey 
right? In the book of Numbers. Uh, so God spoke, and he, he wanted to reveal himself to his people. But in these last days, he's spoken to us, his word. He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. He is the radiance. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. What you see in God, you have in Jesus Christ. Exact representation. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a story of who Jesus is. He was there from the very beginning, but he was the word, God's final revelation revealing himself to us he did it in human form by sending his own son if you want to know who god is look at jesus christ and you can learn a lot about who god is now we have the word of god it's our bible why is that important because it ties us in with the word jesus tells us his story who he is how we can come into relationship with god through him so that was part of the Logos idea. God is communicating to us. But I think John had more in mind here. And I just, out of one of the commentaries, here's what it says. It says, Greek philosophers adopted the term Logos to describe the apparent logic that causes the natural world to obey natural laws such as gravity, mathematics, and morality. To them, to the ancient Greek philosophers, the universe would fall into utter chaos were it not for this impersonal divine mind which they named Logos, or the Word. John takes this concept, and he says, in effect, in effect, the concept that you guys are talking about is true, but let me introduce you to the Word. He is God. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Logos. I think today we have terms like that used in our culture, higher power it's out there in culture people use that term kind of loosely meaning kind of whatever you want to make it but there's someone up there that's a higher power that's overseeing all of this or maybe intelligent designer Our, you know you look around and you cannot argue against the fact that creation has such incredible design that yeah you, ha you have to come to a conclusion there's an intelligent designer and i would say we can take that and go yeah there is a higher power. There is an intelligent designer. His name is God. His name is Jesus Christ. We can give him a name. We can come to know him in personal relationship. We don't have to use these loosey-goosey terms that are kind of thrown out there. So what John was doing is he was stepping into his culture and saying, the Logos is him. That's who Jesus Christ is. He was, he already existed. And then he says in verse one, he was with God, he was God. He was with God, he was distinct from God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's three persons in the Trinity. The Son is distinct from his Father. So he was with God, distinct and in perfect fellowship. There's a relationship part of it too. He was with God his father the word was god there it is the word was continuing as god in character and essence all that's true of god is true of jesus christ so with god was god what you see is this balance of distinct from god but he is god that's the trinity 
They're distinct from each other, but they are one in nature and essence, and that is the truth that we have. Some of you are familiar with the classic work by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. I have it in my office. It's an old paperback. I've had it for many years. And he writes beautifully, and he has a, a little portion on the, the eternity of Jesus. And I wanted to read this to you. The mind looks backward in time until the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points, unaffected by either. He is eternal. Time marks the beginning of created existence, and because God never began to exist, it can have no application to him. He is not bound by time. Began is a time word and can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. He didn't become God. He didn't begin to be God. He was God fully. Eternity past, eternity future. My mind can't wrap around that. I don't know about you, but that's just a truth about God that's forever going to be out there as something I just, I marvel at. Eternity. He's eternal. So not only is he eternal, but John wants us to understand something critical in verse 3. He's the creator. Look at what verse 3 says. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He's pretty clear there, isn't he? Okay. He states it really from two directions. On the positive side, viewed from the past, all things were created back there by him in the past. But then he says, I want to make sure we're clear on this. So he says, looking at it from present, there's nothing that you see in the present world that was not created by him. You can't look around and see something and go, God didn't create that. Jesus Christ did not create that. Now, why is that important? Colossians 1, 16 to 17, by the way, if you want to put that up there. If you want people to understand the deity of Jesus, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1 and 2, those are just great passages for understanding who Jesus is as far as his deity. In him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. There's that eternal nature. And in him all things hold together. Isn't that good to know? In him all things hold together. My life, <laughs> this world, he's our creator. All this world was created through him. Only God is the creator. He created everything. Since the word is the creator and he himself is not created, then he is God. That's the argument that John's giving us here. Now, there are false teachings out there that teach that he was created. And in fact, they're still around today. It started with Arius. We talked about him, where he said there was a time where Jesus did not exist. He believed that Jesus was created. He was a created being. It's still around today, and they come knocking on your door occasionally. I'm talking about Jehovah's Witness and those that hold to the Mormon faith. The Jehovah's Witness believe that Jesus was a created being. In fact, they take John 1.1, and they insert a little article in there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And here's where they added on. They go, and the Word was a 
God. Do you see what they did there? It does not belong in the Greek. It does not belong in Scripture. What they've done is they've said, we believe he was created, so we're going to add it. And in their New World Translation, that's what it reads. And they'll come to your door, and they will read that to you, and you'll go, hmm, your Bible's different than mine. Yeah, it is different than yours, because it was added on. They believe that he was created being. The Mormons, Joseph Smith, believe that the Son was of God. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference. Chuck Swindoll, I wanted to read this little piece to you in his commentary, speaks about Joseph Smith and his belief. John's prologue is not unlike a Rubik's Cube, the exasperating puzzle toy of the 1970s. You can't change one sentence of the prologue without causing the logical problems with the others. By the way, Rubik's Cube, do you enjoy that? Do you still have? I, I hated that thing. Okay. <laughs> Joseph Smith, for example, altered John's prologue in his inspired version of the scriptures to support the notion that Christ is not God, but rather an exalted figure created by God before anything else. He failed, however, to account for verse 3 of chapter 1. So here's what Joseph Smith writes. In the beginning was the gospel preached through the Son. A little bit different, isn't it? And the gospel was the word. And the word was with the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was of God. The same was in the beginning with God. See how he's, it's been tweaked here a little bit, significantly. All things, here's verse 3, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made which was made. Now what's wrong with that? He actually leaves verse 3 alone, quotes it the same way as John does. The problem is, with the logic there, if Jesus Christ, as Chuck Swindoll, it sounds, he says, according to Smith's inspired version, the Word created all things. Furthermore, anything that came into being, that is, anything or anyone that had a beginning, was created by the Word. But if there was a time when Christ was not, that's Arius, his statement, if he came into being at some point in time, which Joseph Smith believes, then Jesus had to have created himself before he existed. If he created all things, if there's nothing that you see that was not created by him, but yet he was created, he's already created, he, the Rubik's Cube is messed up. If that sounds like nonsense, yep, you're right. It is nonsense, therefore. On this point, we can agree, without him was not anything made which was made. Christ could not have made himself. Therefore, he is God, and he created all things. So that statement in verse 3 about him being created, there's nothing that he did not create. He did not create himself. He is the creator. He is God, and it stands on the Today Show, if you want to put up the picture of, some of you will appreciate and maybe know what this, this is a very famous picture. I was watching the Today Show, and uh, Howard Smith, I think is his name, was doing an interview with one of, the, one of the astronauts from Apollo 8. His name is William Anders. He's one of the three that went up. Apollo 8 was the first manned 
spaceship that went to the moon and back. They didn't land on the moon. That came later in Apollo 11 and 69. But in 68, they had to figure out how to get there and back, right? So imagine being the first three people to get into one of these things, these rockets, and go, okay, we're going to shoot ourselves into outer space at this incredible speed, and we're going to go to the moon, around the moon, and then return to Earth safely. How's that sound? And we want you three guys to do that. It was an incredible thing. It happened 50 years ago as of tomorrow. This picture was actually taken on Christmas Eve 50 years ago today. It's called the Earth Rising picture. Now, why, did I, why do I show this? This is a picture of, from Apollo 8 as they were coming around the moon and heading back towards Earth. This is a shot of Earth from the horizon of the moon. It's called Earth Rising, and it, it was famous. It was put on a stamp, and people just... You have to imagine back in the 60s what this meant. For the first time, you're viewing the Earth from a whole different atmosphere, from a whole different place, right? And you're looking back on the place where you're supposed to be, and it's a very beautiful picture. And what captured me about the interview was not just the mission, which in and of itself was unbelievable, but when Harry Smith asked William Anders, he said, you read something when, when you were coming around and you saw that. You read something. What was it? And here's what William Anders read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. He started to read it, and then the other two astronauts continued reading in Genesis 1. And he said, he, said, he says, I don't think Houston was expecting that. <laughs> we kind of caught them by surprise a little bit, but I just loved how in this moment of seeing what they saw, they gave praise and credit and worship to the Creator. Wow. It's not just about science and all the discovery. It's about we're understanding God's creation and we're giving full credit and worship to him. And it blew me away. I started to, tears welled up. I thought, where's that gone in our culture? What's happened to us? We've lost sight of it. But what a beautiful moment. And to recall that 50 years later, tomorrow, as this picture was taken, his credit was given to God. That's, that's beautiful. God is eternal. God is our creator but he's also life and light. Look at verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, he is our life. It's like John is reaching back again, going back into Genesis 1, and these two words, life and light, and how these images as Moses wrote that down about how God created life and then said, let there be light. Even before there was, by the way, before there was a moon and before there was a sun, there was light. Why? Because God existed prior to all that. We don't need that for light. He is light and he is life. But it's more than just physical life because all creatures have life. God created them. It's spiritual life. 
that he's talking about here. Ephesians 2, verse 5. He made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. Without him, we're dead. We need life. We might be breathing, but in spiritual terms, we're as dead as a doornail without him. He brought life into this world. And this life was the light of all men. In contrast to Gnosticism, Gnosticism was a belief system that started to spring up in the first century and then continued on into the early church. This idea that somehow there was a special knowledge available to the few. There was a secret inside deal with God that if you're part of the inside group, you had it. John says, no, God's light is available to all mankind. It's not a secret thing at all. In fact, it's very evident, very clear, very plain from the get-go. It's not hidden, but it's available to all. He is our life. He is our light. God spoke into darkness in the Genesis 1 and created light. God speaks into our world by sending his son, the word, and there's light. It's this beautiful picture, this metaphor of light is anything that belongs to God, anything that is truth. That's what light is. The darkness metaphor is used for things that are opposed to God and that are not of truth. 1 John 1, 5, in his epistle, John tells us, this is a message we've heard from him, and we declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. It's truth. He's light. And you're either in the light or you're in the dark. And that's really the, the condition of mankind. You're with God and you understand his truth or you're in darkness. Those who are in darkness oppose Christ and do not receive him. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 speaks to this. It says, the God, with a small g, of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, capital C, who is the image of God, capital G. So the God, small g, he's blinded people's eyes. They can't see that light. It's out there. It's available to all. It's evident to all, but they're blinded to it for some reason. The darkness has not overcome it. Now, this is an interesting word. This Greek word can go one of two ways, and your translations go one of two ways with it. The NIV, the ESV, the NLT go with overcome or overpower side. The King James, the New American Standard, it's about a 50-50 split. They go with comprehend or understand. Why is that? Because the Greek word can go either way, and that's some of the struggle sometimes with translating these words. The word katalambano, how's that for a Greek word? It means to lay hold of or seize, grasp. Lay hold of or seize. So it, it has kind of the idea of overpowering, to lay hold of something. It also has with it the idea of, of grasping intellectually, understanding something. So what, what is it? Which one is it? I'd say both. How's that for going right down the middle on it? And why? Because the darkness could not overcome the light. Is that true? 
You can put Jesus in the grave, but he's just going to rise again. You can't overcome him. So that is so true. But also, it's fair to say that uh, people didn't comprehend or understand the light. That's true also. He came, he spoke, people just didn't get it. So both can be said to be true. So in the first five verses, John declares the character and nature of Jesus. He's, he's the eternally existent word of God. He's a creator. He's life. He's light. He now speaks in verse 6 to 13. He talks about the witnesses to these truths. The first one is John the Baptist in verses 6 to 8. John spoke of him. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He was not the light. He came only as a witness to it. Again, that's John the Baptist, isn't it? He's a forerunner. He came to present the Messiah to talk about the Lamb of God. Behold, at the end of chapter 1, the Lamb of God. He's going to take away the sins of the world. That's John the Baptist's ministry. So he was sent by God for that very purpose. But Jesus came and his light manifested itself, verses 9 through 13. He was revealed. Look at verse 9. He says, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus Christ, God's true light. Does that sound familiar? Christmas carols, silent night, holy night, son of God, God's true light. Radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. The author of that beautiful carol was probably reading John 1 when he wrote it. Son of God, God's true light had come into the world and revealed God to all of us. We're without excuse. He came, he lived here. But he was rejected, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, he was rejected by the world. Look at what verse 10 says. He came to that, oh sorry, I jumped. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. They did not know him. The Greek word there is understanding, relationship kind of knowing. You can know about somebody, but to really know them in relationship is very different. They did not know him, the world. So he was a creator. He created the world. He was in the world. The world missed it. But then he goes on in verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. How painful must that have been? His own meaning the people of Israel, God's chosen people, the passage by which the Messiah would come into this world. They didn't receive him either. In fact, they rejected him. He was their promised Messiah, but they didn't get it. They missed it. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6 God is speaking to Moses here about who the people of Israel are and how important they are. It says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you, Israel, will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, I created it, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I'm coming through you. I am your Messiah. I want you to be priests and a holy nation to me. I want you to introduce others to me. But 
he was rejected by them. But the good news is that's not where the story ends. Look at 12 and 13. But to those who receive him, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. There are those who have received him, those who believe on his name understand they understand who he is and they put their faith and their trust in him they have the right to become children of god wow that's powerful verse 13 how does this birth occur it tells us it's not a matter of natural descent it's not a bloodline thing it's not a lineage it's not something that you inherit from people before you it's not a matter of your own desire in verse 13, it says, they were born not of a husband's will, nor of a human decision, but of God's. It's his work. It's a matter of God's mercy and grace as God works on people's hearts and they respond to him and put their faith in him. Then they enter into God's family. They're children of God. I hear people say this, and I just want to put this out there for your thinking. I hear Christians say it sometimes, and non-Christians, and they say, after all, and they'll say statements like, after all, we're all God's children. Is that true? I would say biblically, no, and here's why. Only those who receive Christ as their Savior and respond by faith are God's children. Okay, We're all God's creatures. I think we can say that. We were all created by God. We're His creatures. We're not all God's children and that's a terminology thing and it's a doctrinal thing and we have the right to become the children of god that's a special thing only for those who receive him jesus says i am the way i am the truth i am the life no one becomes a part of my family no one comes to god except through me so something to think about then the Christmas story, the word incarnated, verse 14. Here's the good news. He was the word. He came, he became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, incarnation. I made the statement last week, and I've seen on Facebook the chilly comments, concarne. God concarne, he took on flesh. Sorry for that, some of you can't eat chili now forever. It's my <laughs> fault. Most in John's day had no problem accepting the deity of Christ. Those that followed him understood he was God. Some people, however, were troubled by his humanity, that he became flesh. Why? Because there was teaching going around, Gnosticism was part of this, but Plato the influence of Plato, and he taught that flesh is evil, spirit is good. So how could God, the spirit, good, become flesh, evil, bad? And they had this separation between the two in their thinking. Flesh cannot be good, only spirit is good. So if Jesus took on flesh, then ugh, that doesn't match in their thinking. And they had trouble with it. The docetism, the docetists, he appeared to be human, he really wasn't, okay? We want to be clear because flesh is bad. 
Plato was messed up. God created flesh. Yes, that flesh, that the fallen nature part of us, yeah, there is a sinfulness in us. But flesh in and of itself is not bad. Jesus Christ, when he came back to life, still had a body. He didn't come back to life as a ghost or an apparition, and he was very careful to show his disciples that. Flesh is not in and of itself bad, and spirit, it isn't that. He is fully man, incarnation, God becoming us, and he made his dwelling among us. The word is actually tabernacle. He tabernacled. He pitched his tent, if you will, amongst us. And there's a reference there, and the Hebrew mind would have totally got it. That tabernacle, it was there. It was the presence of God amongst his people as they traveled through the wilderness. That's what Jesus is. He's God with us as we're traveling through life in the wilderness. He tabernacled among us. It's just a beautiful word to think about what he did. And we've seen his glory. 1 John 1.1. John, who is writing this, was a disciple of Jesus. He saw the glory of Jesus. In 1 John, in his epistle, 1.1, it says, That which was from the beginning, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. He's been with us, we get, we've seen all this, this beautiful glory, we understand who he is. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus became, he shone like light, he saw that. He's speaking. He said, I've seen it. What did I see? Part of his nature, he's God. But I also see these two qualities in Jesus that I love. Grace and truth. Grace is unmerited favor based on his sacrifice for you and me. That's grace. I don't deserve this. But he died for me. He took the cost of sin for me and I can accept it. Simply the free offer of grace that is given to each one. That's great. He's full of grace. But he's also full of truth. He's going to speak truth to you, and you're not always going to like to hear it. But he's going to tell you about who God is, really, and about how to have a relationship with God, really. Grace and truth. So, in conclusion, what is God like? People ask that a lot. I would say take a look at Jesus and you have a really good idea. He is God in the flesh. He tabernacled here. Get to know Jesus. You'll get to know God. You know, I've really enjoyed going through the four books and doing the Advent candles. I just want to invite Patty to come up here and join me. You know, Matthew, he is our king. He's royalty. That's what the purple color represents. He's our servant. The purple color in church tradition represents humility and the idea of confessing your sins. That's the servant image of who Jesus is, purple. Then this candle here is the joy candle. It's kind of a rose-colored tradition, the fact that he took on flesh, he became you and me, he identified with us, took our sins to the cross. For me, that's my greatest source of joy. 
to know who he is and what he did. And then there's the fact that he is God, fully God in human form. And one of the things we do at the very end is we light the Christ candle, which is the white one, prior to Christmas Day. But as I do that, I want to read a verse out of Hebrews for you. And I just want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and just say from Patty and I to you and on behalf of the staff and the board here at CBC, we love you all and we wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, isn't that beautiful? He, he walks through heaven. He's God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He's like us. He gets it. He can empathize with you and me because he's fully human. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He is our Emmanuel. He is God with us.